This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time, and we have a very, very engaging guest who is going to bring a completely different dimension. It's one that I've kind of been talking about for a long period of time in the background. And Dr. Judy Safrier from Boston, an MD at Harvard, is going to tell us about the problem of complexity and the evolution of neuroscience and the problem with the duality that exists between traditional thinking, functional medicine thinking, and the larger perspective of Eastern thinking. Judy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chuck. So we're really going to talk about this in just a moment. I'm going to start real quickly by a few words from our sponsors. Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Direct Health Access Laboratory. They are international leaders in molecular testing for mind science details. With over 3 million studies, they provide deep experience with the usefulness of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. Their innovative insights improve treatment priorities through a global service with a molecular focus. Connect your provider with a PDF on how and why these tests work for treatment failure at dhalab.com forward slash core. Stay tuned for more details in a moment. Core Brain Journal is also sponsored by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, where they provide fresh options to address the complexity of child and adolescent treatment failure from behavior imbalances to substance abuse, both nationally and internationally. Most interesting is their innovative deep focus on data-driven biomedical advances that measure specifics on what to do with treatment failures even after multiple hospitalizations or extensive outpatient work. It's a residential care center. Review their innovative programs at barryrobinson.org forward slash core with a B-A-R-R-Y robinson.org forward slash core. More information coming in just a moment. So let me tell you about Dr. Safrir. She is a board-certified, conventionally trained adult and child psychiatrist, like yours truly, and a psychoanalyst, like yours truly. This is where we are brothers and sisters. And teaches at Harvard Medical School. I wish I did, but I don't. She's a Harvard Medical School faculty member with a private practice of holistic adult and child psychiatry located in Newton, Massachusetts. She has a deep curiosity about development and healing and an open mind about trying diverse approaches to help her patients. She is forever learning new things. Long distance high five, Judy. <laughs> she is familiar with working within a traditional medical and psychiatric paradigm, but is now much more drawn to the functional medicine model as well. By this, she means she addresses the root causes of illness rather than simply suppressing symptoms with pharmaceuticals. She's also skilled in the use of energetic and spiritual methodologies. She's trained in a variety of energetic approaches, including Kundalini Yogi, Reiki, astrology, tarot, and shamanism. And she includes all those modalities when there is an interest or necessity in the treatment paradigm. So she works with many of her patients for the necessary changes to optimize all of their health 
which eventually allows them to wean off of psychiatric medications or at least reduce the dosages. So this isn't always possible, but she, with these different approaches, she helps along that line. She chose a bridge as a symbol for her practice. She's drawn to the consideration and inclusion of disparate contrasting elements in her understanding of people and situations. Let's talk to Judy, folks. This is going to be so interesting. So how did you get on that very interesting path, one that I'm happy to walk with you on this afternoon? How did you get over there? Well, I think that's probably a very long and complex answer, but I think at the heart of it was that the family that I grew up in was very ill medically and psychiatrically, and no one really understood what was going on and how to help. And in addition, there was a lot of ancestral trauma in my family. And so it sensitized me and made me aware of the need to try and find answers that are outside the box and to include a lot of different perspectives. Well, that's interesting because even when we were talking offline for just a moment, you were talking about ancestral. So you you are looking at history very carefully, and then you look at every single other paradigm that might actually be constructive in the resolution conflict. Well, I wouldn't say every single, but... (laughs) She's humble, folks. She's humble. (laughs) She's going to try. (laughs) Try to think about what needs to be included and considered. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same way. I mean, you know, that that was an overstatement. Yes, you're very very correct. You're what you're saying is I'm going to do everything I possibly can to really get down to the bottom line. Right, and to keep learning because I feel as though what I know is absolutely incomplete and that there's always new things and other things that need to be added to the consideration. Well, folks, Judy and I met a while ago at Walsh Conference, Dr. William Walsh. We've interviewed him four times here, so I know she understands the Walsh Protocols, and he does offer an interesting dimension. I wonder, you use the Walsh Protocols yourself on a regular basis? All the time, almost Mm -hmm. every patient, unless they're just coming to me for psychotherapy and they're not interested in trying to explore if there's some kind of biochemical basis symptoms that we could diagnose, but I always use it with almost everybody. What would you say would be, in terms of the Walsh protocols, and folks, you can find all of them at corebrainjournal.com forward slash 115. Dr. Walsh is the most downloaded recording that we have in all of our recordings so far with individuals who we talk to. But what would you say, Judy, from your perspective as a professional who has a wide variety of experience? What was one of the main issues that you have appreciated so much from Dr. Walsh and his intervention strategies? I think all of it, really. It's so helpful to figure out what's going on with a person in terms of their methylation status. It's so helpful for some people to figure out that they have elevated copper. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's just amazing because you can actually sit down and look at the data and tell them what's going on with them. I mean, even if they haven't told you. I mean, I feel like with... I'm in getting increasingly good at guessing before I see the labs, but sometimes like they, it's not entirely clear. They have symptoms that are consistent with several different imbalances, and sometimes they have more than one, frequently actually. I don't always know ahead of time, but I'm, I sometimes can guess. Yeah, well, I, I guess really from what happens when I get the data, then I can tell them other symptoms they haven't told me. Yeah, And that brings a little bit of uh, validity to the whole situation. Like, oh, yes, this is meaningful material, and, and it does. So 
but it's very, very interesting to pull it together and then to see what happens with them when they actually start trying some of these other intervention strategies out. Right. But I would have to say that I don't think that using Dr. Walsh's protocols alone will help the majority of people, that there's Mm -hmm. also a need to figure out what's going on with them in terms of their diet and food sensitivities and intolerances, what's going on with their gut health. Absolutely. Do they have some kind of infection, some kind of dysbiosis that needs to be treated? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one very important piece of the puzzle, but only one piece. So true. My favorite question is how many times a day do you go number two? (laughs) (laughs) It's too easy. And they're like, why are you asking me that? I mean, because it's so relevant. Exactly. And then I I pull out the Mayo Clinic protocol for the transit time. And I haven't talked to you about this, but we have them eat a can of corn and look at their watch and see how long it takes to pass. And it's uh, the Mayo Clinic has got the transit time down to uh, 12 to 24 hours. And almost every time, it's either six hours or three days. I had one guy that said, I go every day, Parker. He said, I think you're anally fixated. You asked me that question when I first came in. He says, he was a... uh, a construction foreman, you know, he's doing the guy talk, you know. I said, listen, can you afford 69 cents? <laughs> can you just get eat a can of corn? So he ate the can of corn and he came back in about two weeks. He said, Parker, I hate to tell you, you were right. I said, well, how right was I? He said, well, I had that can of corn Friday night. It did not come through for 10 days. And I had a bowel movement every single day. I said, well, that's why the medications were bouncing off of your liver like a bulletproof liver then the medicines wasn't working, the supplements don't work, nothing works. And uh, so anyway, I, I'm, talking, I'm talking to you, but I thought you'd get a kick out of it because we're so much on the same path with that, Judy. I, I completely agree with you. Although I have to say, I would never suggest a can of corn because that's one of the top allergens. <laughs> I'll stand corrected on that. These are people, they're innocent. <laughs> And I have people that can't do the corn. You're quite right. But I just do it because you can see it. That's right. Well, it is (laughs) a good visual. Yeah, it's a visual, yeah. So you're into some very interesting things that I really don't know much about at all. I mean, I've noticed on our, because you contribute on the uh, listserv about different observations, and you've really added some fantastically interesting observations. I don't have one right in the middle of my mind right now, but I know that you do a lot of work with women with estrogen dominance and their hormones as well. Is that correct? Not really. I am very tuned into the relationship between hormonal problems and copper toxicity. Yeah. But I haven't really done a lot with hormone treatments or anything like that. Oh, yeah. I guess I just remember you commenting on it so quickly and so effectively. And that's kind of where I am with it is, is the copper and its relationship to estrogen. Right. So you then refer them out to a compounding pharmacist, not a compounding, OBGYN person, or what do you do with those people when they come up and they actually do have estrogen dominance and you're correcting the copper, of course? Well, you know, like I haven't really done that much with referring people for hormonal treatment. It seems like focusing on the nutrients protocols with the work of Dr. Walsh and getting their diet in line and correcting their gut dysbiosis that, and their stress. I mean, stress is just so enormously 
relevant to helping a person feel better. And it sounds like it's a no-brainer, but it really is at the heart of so much. Like that seems to be very helpful without referring them to an endocrinologist. So how do you manage that in Newton, Massachusetts? Stress? Yeah. I'll talk with people about, you know, just the usual things like meditation, yoga, with ideas about like increasing their vagal tone. Like the vagus nerve is the parasympathetic system and you need to strengthen that because a lot of people are in constant fight or flight. So I'll talk with people about something that's called aggressive gargling. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, tell us about that, please. But these are all techniques to stimulate the vagus nerve, which then causes a relaxation response. So you can do it without water, but then it's kind of is irritating to the throat. So if you just make like a gargling noise with like a teaspoon of water, a tablespoon of water, but kind of in a loud way, Mm -hmm. and do that for like 10 seconds and then spit out the water and do it like five times and do that three times a day, that really stimulates the vagus nerve, as does like putting like the gag reflex. Like, so if you just like sitting there and you put your pencil on your tongue and make like a gag, that stimulates the vagus nerve. Also singing and, and singing loudly, not just a little bit of singing, stimulates the vagus nerve. So these are all techniques that cause a person to feel relaxation. In addition, breathing techniques can be really important. Like when a person does deep breathing and their exhalation is longer than their inhalation, so if they inhale for four and exhale for eight, that also causes a relaxation response. So these are just like a few things, but I mean, for many people, it's incredibly relaxing and healing to go out in nature. So I'll recommend forest bathing or walking by the sea. There's many ways that a person can tune into relaxing. Well, now tell us about forest bathing for a moment. It's just walking in the forest. Okay, I was... And the trees, they give off chemical substances that are very relaxing to the system, not to mention the beauty and the peace and the quiet of being in that environment. It just is spending time in the forest and maybe not being in an animated conversation with somebody as you're doing so, but really just tuning into the environment. It's a Japanese idea for bathing. I forget what they, it's a, something that they do regularly there. That's very interesting. I mean, you know, the idea of being, it's always been of interest to me. It's been fun for me. I've done it, but I didn't really know that it had a name for it. I was occasionally jumped into a lake without any clothes on, but I didn't know if that's, if that's what you were talking about. It doesn't happen often, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> so Kundalini Yogi, you had that very specifically and people who know about yoga, but what is the difference there and why did you differentiate that and specify that when you were talking about well that's a whole like spiritual technology i did a um, training last year in kundalini yoga and it has a lot of breath work that's associated with it a lot of chanting it's much less like a physical athletic kind of practice and it's more of a spiritual one and sometimes there can be mantras recommended for certain conditions. And there's just a lot of ways that it can be made use of. And I really haven't done as much with it as I think it has the potential to be done, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's something that I have been exploring. When you were in training there, did you get the impression that people had a kind of hierarchy with training, that there were certain things you could do here and then certain things you could master at a certain level? It sounds like a, if it's spiritual, I always think about 
Zen masters and understanding that process in an even deeper way. Do they have a structure like that or not? Well, I mean, I think there's different levels of training that you can go through, but I think the technology is basically quite accessible to anyone who practices it, and it's helpful. So it's just a question of getting in a program. Yes, or just, you know, taking some classes in it. It's just another school of yoga. Yeah. Well, that's great. You're in, and you're in a great community to do it. I mean, being around Boston is just so, so interesting. I get so many really interesting people up there. Right. There's a lot going on. Too much to really even begin to scratch this. <laughs> so then I'm going to take a break here and we're going to come back in just a second. But I'm going to ask you this question because I, you're interested in the gut and the microbiome. As I share that interest with you. And what I'd like to do is ask you to talk to us a little bit about what your experience with it is in terms of whether you test for food sensitivities, what you look for, how you treat microbiome challenges, and uh, leaky gut, use a contemporary word. So we'll be back in just a moment, folks, and we'll talk to Judy about that. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. Well, welcome back, folks. We have had such a good conversation here. We have a transformational individual that we're talking to here who really bridges the gap between the traditional and the evolution of neuroscientific ideas that actually can be applied in different ways constructively. And Dr. Safrir is fantastic. She's into it. And we just left with a question about gut and mind. We talk so much about this in different ways. And because you really have that one foot in tradition and you got this other foot in functional medicine, how do you actually measure, first of all, and then what do you do to understand and apply those uh, treatments regarding what you've measured? What are you looking for and what do you do about it? Okay, so this is a big topic and it's really remarkable. When somebody comes to see me, I really spend quite a bit of time talking with them about their diet. And unfortunately, when many people go to see their doctors, that's not really a question that is explored. Somebody might be asked, so how is your diet? They say, oh, I eat a healthy diet. Well, that can mean many different things to different people. So I really want to find out what a person is eating. And some people have food intolerances and food sensitivities, and it can just be absolutely a game changer for them if you can identify 
what are the particular food sensitivities that they're reacting to, the food intolerances. So I've done many different things over the years in my practice at the present moment. And I also have to assess where a person is and what they are willing to do, because it really depends upon a person's level of motivation. Sometimes if you suggest to somebody that they avoid having gluten and dairy, they're just like, no way, they just can't do it. And that is really a problem because very often people have significant inflammatory responses to those two foods in particular. So it's kind of like a bottom line with me to begin with that gluten, dairy, and sugar are out if you're having psychiatric symptoms. But for many people, that is not sufficient. As I mentioned earlier in the conversation about the corn, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cross-reactivity with corn and gluten. So there's something that's called, I don't know, you may be familiar with the paleo diet. Yes. Well, the paleo diet is a diet that, well, it's the paleo diet and lifestyle where the idea is that our diets today are so different than our Paleolithic ancestors who were hunter-gatherers and that our genome is really not adapted to eat Neolithic foods, which are like grains and legumes and things that you that are grown through agriculture. But for people who are having psychiatric symptoms, very often the paleo diet. So the paleo diet avoids grains, avoids legumes, and avoids all processed foods and additives. But I recommend for people who are willing and motivated the paleo autoimmune protocol, and that is essentially an elimination diet where a person avoids all of the top allergens. And that those are foods that for a person who doesn't have problems could be healthy foods like eggs. But if a person has an intolerance to eggs, that can really cause tremendous anxiety symptoms or insomnia. So the paleo autoimmune protocol leaves out eggs, leaves out nuts and seeds, leaves out nightshades. So it's essentially an elimination diet where a person avoids those foods for one or two months and is tracking symptoms. So their symptoms may be headaches, their symptoms may be some kind of rashes, there may be GI symptoms, there may be psychiatric symptoms, sleep, and then introducing the food systematically one by one and seeing if they have a response, and a response could be anything. So that is something that can be very, very helpful. Now, when you reintroduce, let me interrupt you for just a second, because I don't usually do an elimination, and I'm learning from you while you're talking to me about this. How do you actually work that out with an individual? Do you have them, when they come back, do they do the foods that were questionable for a week, for example, and just use that food? How do you actually reintroduce the food and assess it? Well, you have to do it very systematically or otherwise you're going to be completely confused about and all of your hard work will be sort of out the window. Mm -hmm. So let's say you want to reintroduce eggs. So you eat a few bites of eggs and wait a little while, eat another few bites, wait a little while, and then have like a regular portion and maybe have another regular portion later in the day and then just observe for at least three or four days there can be delayed responses. And it can be very hard to sort out if you're not really being systematic and scrupulous about it. See, the reason I ask you that question is because in terms of being scrupulous, I'm kind of obsessional, if you will. I kind of don't want to call myself that, but I want to get the testing on the front end. 
with right. IgG testing and right. I get that IgG testing, then I feel like I have something to actually present to the person. Right. And they're much more likely. You, you're you nodding your head. What do you think about that? I'm shaking my head. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Clarification. It's my, it's my impression, and I obviously can be wrong about this, that those tests are very expensive and very often yield false positives and false negatives. And I believe that the gold standard is to do an elimination diet and to test on yourself. Did you eat this food and now are you having trouble sleeping? Did you eat this food and you now have brain fog? Did you eat this food and suddenly you feel irritable and anxious? That to me is really... The gold standard for you. Yeah. So another test that I do now, just like I do this testing that I learned from Dr. Walsh with almost everybody, for most of my patients, I do the organic acids test. Mm -hmm. from Great Plains Lab. Yes. That gives me a lot of important information mm -hmm. about gut dysbiosis. Does a person have fungi, fungal overgrowth or candida? Do they have mm -hmm. ostridia? Some kind of gut dysbiosis. How are their mitochondria doing? Do they have elevated oxalates? It gives a lot of great information. So yep. I'm doing that with most everybody. Depending upon what I find, if they have gut dysbiosis these days, I really like the herbal antimicrobial from biobotanicals. And I use that with almost everybody. I find that I get really good results with that. They also have a new probiotic that I really like that is soil-based. And I just think that their, their products are really very well tolerated and very good. So that's another thing. Let's see. Biobotanicals, that's a good one to remember because uh, I do the same thing. I'm in line with you very much. You know, we see the candida and, and uh, biobotanicals is a, is a big one. And, and then going through how to take the candida out and actually restore the gut and the probiotic. And fermented foods can be very helpful for people who don't have histamine intolerance. Bone broth is a very nourishing food for, I mean, I talk a lot with people about cooking. You mm -hmm. know, like cooking is really important. Very hard to eat well and follow a diet that is not the standard American diet if you're not going to cook. And cooking is kind of a lost art. So it's, it's really important. Well, you know, it's so interesting, and I'm so glad to talk to you. I think another thing, because some of the people are listening are professionals, and what they don't see, which I'm sure you see all the time, and I see it quite often, is when you get this background noise taken care of, the medications can be lowered. Then the trick is really understanding that the medications aren't working correctly because they're actually coming out the top of the window from the point of view that they're, they're in a way overdose of the medications because you fixed the underlying problem. And then they have side effects. So instead of, you know, whether it's an antidepressant, for example, they're really feeling almost stoned on the antidepressant because it's too much now. Previously it was great, but now it's too much. And the same thing happens with stimulants. The stimulants, they're on something for executive function problems and then all of a sudden they're out the top of the wind, not all of a sudden, but over time they're, they're out the top. They feel agitated and anxious because the medications become too much. It's not really needed and it's an excess. And that's a real nuance problem that you have to really understand what the medications do in the first place to understand that interface. You see that all the time. Yeah, I do see that. And I mean, many people come to see me because they want to come off of medicine. You know, like mm -hmm. They know that if they went to see a conventional psychiatrist, that the first thing that would happen would be that the prescription pad would be pulled out. So they're looking for something different. 
I'm imagining that it would be quite difficult because Harvard is so traditional. You would be a different person up there. I would, no, it's not that way, huh? There is like very little awareness, very little interest, very little curiosity, and so far as I've observed. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, that's what I observed too, because, and I mean, all of Boston kind of waits for Harvard to see what they're going to do and that these other things are going on, you know, and, and these other challenges occur. Mm -hmm. I mean, it may be that I just haven't run across it in the circles that I am. I don't want to generalize. Yeah, I understand. And then, I mean, there's a big problem with all of our alternative methods in that there's this kind of tyranny of the double-blind, placebo-controlled research. And that research is not going to get done unless there's funding. And there's not going to be funding done for nutrient protocols. That's or so Yeah. No methods, nothing, something that can't be patented. And so the research isn't getting done. So therefore, the clinical experience is seen to be anecdotal and not really credible. And mm -hmm. it just really keeps progress from being made. And it's been a very destructive state of affairs. Well, I was at the American Psychoanalytic Association meeting back in Toronto, I guess it was a year, maybe two ago. And I was interested to see how psychiatrists are changing. There were the groups that were doing the traditional thing because it's a it's psychiatrist. But I was surprised how many people were coming up with, in fact, talking about what you and I are talking about right here. Well, you said the psychoanalytic meetings or the psychiatric meetings? Psychiatric meeting, not the psychoanalytic meetings. I'm yeah. That, that was a fun thing in the past. I don't go to those meetings anymore. I mean, they're interesting. I mean, they would be interesting, but I don't have time for them. I'm trying to figure out how the rest of the world works. And, yeah. And it's, it's uh, too confusing. Well, listen, I think we're going to wind up here. We want to make sure we keep you on your schedule. I really appreciate you coming by and sharing with us. I have a lot of admiration and respect for you. I think you do a lot of things very, very well. Sorry, you might not be able to be up there at the Walsh meeting in, in uh, April, but that's okay. We'll see you again sometime. I know I follow you on the listserv. Well, thank you, Chuck, for having me on your program. I really appreciate it. So uh, let's leave a note for where people can get a hold of you. So let's talk about that for a quick second, if we could. Okay. So it's my, my website is my name, and you probably ha will have it in your show notes. It's I will have it on the show notes for sure. SafariaMD.com. Yeah. And I have a blog, and I write about things that I care about. Folks, I want to tell you, you need to go over to her blog because it is exceedingly well-written. She writes very, very well. She's, you know how articulate she is. You've heard her commentary here. Her writing is really superb, and I strongly recommend that you go over and get on the blog and sign up for it because she's a really forward-thinking a thought leader, in my opinion, in what's going to, the transformations that are taking place in psychiatry today. You're so kind, Chuck. Thank you so much. And I also admire what you're doing and your podcast is great that you're getting all of this information out there to people. It's fun. We work together very well. I look forward to having you back sometime, Judy. Thanks. So that's Dr. Judith Safrier. We get it right. Thank you so much for coming on board, girl. You have a great day. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. 
If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.